0: Right, power, what to do with it, how to get more of it, what happens when we misuse it. This is a theme throughout human history. If you just look at human history and power, you see that it's a theme. Not only is it a theme throughout human history, it's a theme throughout how we tell stories as humans. A lot of our storytelling involves talking about power, but it also involves actual history. It's like an actual theme of actual history. If you take things like wars or even things like Chernobyl, you learn that power and how we use it and how we misuse it has dire consequences a lot of times. If you look at our our stories, our movies, if you just take the different kinds of movies out there, you'll realize that power is a huge theme of these movies. If you take superhero movies, it seems like almost every superhero movie is saying there's this person with power and they should do good with their power, right? If you take sports movies, A lot of times sports movies are are people with less physical power and then there's some other team with more physical power and it's about how this team with less physical power is going to gain more physical power to overcome the team with more physical power. If you take even just any movie that has some kind of villain or bad guy in it, what you're often going to see is that there's some behind the scenes power or force or group with power that is using that power to oppress or lie or do something terrible in some way. And so the theme of power has been on humanity's mind for a long time, and it continues to be on our mind in much of our, our storytelling. Today... In our We Want a King series, we're going to see this theme of power come up again. In fact, I think what we're going to see in today's message in particular is that the God of all power is bothered by abuses of power which are some of the things we've been seeing in this series already. We've been seeing how God is bothered by certain abuses of power, by any abuses of power, really. And so what we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at the first three kings of Israel. We looked at Saul, and we've been looking at David. And we're going to get to the end of David's life, so to speak, and the end of 2 Samuel today. And what we are going to see is the God of all power bothered by a couple uh, abuses of power. Now, 2 Samuel is kind of interesting, the end of it, the end of 2 Samuel is kind of interesting in that uh, it ends, not necessarily chronological, most most scholars go, hey, 9 through 20 is definitely chronological, but then 21 through 24, which is the end of 2 Samuel, it's probably not necessarily chronological, it's kind of like whatever the author wanted to wrap up 2 Samuel with some parts, bits and pieces of David's life. And so, what you see at the end of 2 Samuel are like two to three stories. Maybe three to four stories that could be chronological, but could be from earlier in David's life. You see a psalm of David's that the author said to themselves, like, hey, I want to put this psalm of David's in here. If you don't know what a psalm is, it's simply a song that the people of God would sing together in worship. And then you see some of David's last words in there. And that's how 2 Samuel ends. And so we're going to go through this today, and we're going to really kind of see the last three lessons... From from the end of 2 Samuel, or from the end of David's life, even though it might not quite be chronological. And the first lesson will really kind of point us to who God is. And the second lessons also point us to who God is. But we see who God is, the second and the third lessons, we see who God is through how he is bothered by certain abuses of power. So that's kind of where we go. So for simplicity's sake, you could just say, hey, we're going to look at the last three lessons of, of the end of 2 Samuel together. Does that make sense? All right. So I don't think it does, but we'll get there. Uh, so one uh, uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> we'll figure it out. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by looking at the, the God of all power and how 2 Samuel ends with this look of the God of all power and how David looks at him in particular and the way that, da- that we see how David looks at the God of all power, which is our God. He, there's this psalm that's put in the end of 2 Samuel, and then there's some last words. And so I'm going to read some sections from this psalm, and then I'm going to read some of David's last words. It's going to be a lot of Bible verses, but some, I, I think it's just good at church to let the word pour over us. Okay, amen, amen. All right. So let me read from uh, this psalm that this author put in. I believe it's also Psalm 18, or it's close to Psalm 18. And this is in 2 Samuel 22. I'm going to start with the first four verses. And David spoke to the Lord words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, "'The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence.'" I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Let's hop down to verse 32 of that same chapter. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for the steps under me, and my feet did not slip. Now, verse 47, just verse 47. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. You're probably starting to see a theme and a particular title that David is using over and over again. But before we talk about that... Let's look at David's last words, okay? So in chapter 23, he has some of David's last words, and so last words back then, it wasn't like someone like came up to them on their bed and like started recording, like, oh, I'm dying, and I like wrote that down. That's not how it happened, but last words back then, kings knew they were getting to the end of their life, and they said, hey, I want my official last words to the people of God, to, the, to my people, to be this, and they would write down essentially the last things that, that David or any king wanted to say to the people, and so this is what said says in verses 2 through 4 as some of his last words. i take a quick drink. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Okay, did you catch the common theme, the common title really, that David gives to God in this psalm that the author of Samuel chose to put in there and then David chose for his last words? He says that God is a rock. At the end of David's life, what he wanted people to remember about god is that god is not just a far off powerful being but he is indeed david's own rock right he is it's personal he's not a far off mountain he is the mountain he is the rock that david stands on god is david's refuge god is david's foundation god is david's strength god is a rock church. If we're going through the end of 2 Samuel and we miss something that gets repeated a bunch of times, it would be bad news for us. God is a rock. If there's anything that, that David wants to leave us with at the end of his life, is to remember that God is a rock. That God wants such deep connection to us, to his people. That God himself is who we lean on. God is who we lean on. That's how close of a relationship God wants with us. And so I, I think as David says this about God, I think we just have to say, how are we going to lean on God? How are we going to press into realizing that God is a rock for us just as much as he was a rock for David? I think perhaps more so because of the Holy Spirit. God is a rock. Church, what are the things that you do lean on? What are the things you do find your foundation on? What are the things you find your strength in? You find your refuge in. You find your rest in. I think at the end of David's life, as we look at his last words and look at this psalm, I think what we have to realize is that God is a better rock than anything that we find refuge in. He is the thing to find our refuge in. And so I don't know exactly what it looks like for each and every one of you to press into this identity of God. But I would encourage you to think, how do I press into accessing or knowing or leaning into this identity of God? That like God is a rock. Maybe God becomes the friend that you call up when you're frustrated about life. Maybe his word becomes the wisdom and truth that you center your life around. Maybe you start leaning on him in prayer every possible way you can. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like for you. But I would just encourage you, church, that what David speaks about God there in 2 Samuel at the end is not just for David. It's for us. It's for his people. God is the rock that we can all stand on. It would have made a lot more sense if I just left this part out of the sermon with kind of the other stories and the themes of the end of 2 Samuel. But I just could not get away from the fact that all through the two of the four last chapters of 2 Samuel, constantly we're hearing that God is a rock. And so church, I'm just excited to talk about that idea that God is a rock. How will we as a church lean into him, find our refuge in him, stand on him? Because that's who he presents himself to be. And again, it's not a far-off powerful rock. It's the rock we're standing on with our own feet. That's how personal our God is. He wants to be who you lean on. And so that's, what, that's one of the things that David shows us at the end of his life, that God is a rock to be leaned on, to find our refuge in. Okay, and so now we could go into these kind of last couple of stories where we see the God of all power who is a rock, deals with these abuses of power. And, and both of these stories happen on either side of this psalm and, and these last words. There's one in chapter 21, and then there's uh, another one in chapter 24. And I'm, I'm just going to say this on the front end. Both chapter 21, the story we're going to read, and, bo- and 24, the story we're going to read there, these are stories that are going to leave you with questions for days, okay? Like, you're going to go, how does, this, who is this God? Like, you're you're, you're going to be confused. And, I, and I'll say this. I might answer some of the questions, but I, I'm not going to be able to answer all of them in the time we have here. I could, but that might be like a three- or four-week series by itself. And then two, sometimes we get stuck on these questions instead of seeing what God is trying to communicate like, what his main point is in these stories. And so we're going to be looking at these main points. And so if you find yourself wrestling with some of these kind of, I I will just say, bizarre scenes with God and the people of God, I would just say this. Continue to wrestle, but I would love to get coffee or lunch or something with you and wrestle with you and see if I have any good answers. I probably don't, but I can just wrestle with you. We can lament that together. And so so let's look at this first story in 2 Samuel 21, where we see the God of all power deal with an abuse of power, okay? So 2 Samuel 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to probably basically summarize the rest of that particular story. So uh, here's what it says. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Okay, we could pause there for a minute. So a very strange scene. There's a famine for three years in Israel. And David starts to go, I think something is up. I think maybe God might be behind this in some way. And so he seeks the Lord, and the Lord says, yeah, uh, I am behind this. Because there is blood guilt on Saul. So apparently Saul, over the course of his kingship at some point, he had tried to wipe out or kill or oppress the Gibeonites in some way. We don't know all the details. But he, he killed a lot of them or killed some of them. We, we don't know. But he wanted to wipe them out. The problem with this was the Gibeonites had a covenant with Israel, they had a, a pact, a promise, like a, a contract in one sense between these two groups of people where the Israelites said, okay, we're not going to hurt you. We're almost going to treat you as if you're kind of like part of the people of God. And you can even find where this happened. It was much earlier in Israel's history in Joshua chapter 9, okay? And even the Gibeonites, they were kind of a little bit deceptive of how they started that covenant with Israel. But all the same, they were kind of in some sense the people of God, and Saul, the previous king before David, had tried to wipe them out or kill them or do something in some kind of oppressive way. And so here's David, however many years later, chilling as king, and there's just a famine for three years, and, and David's like, God, is this you? Like, I would have been like, man, this, just is, a, this, is, a, this is a bummer, <laughs> like right? But David's like, God, is this you? And, and, and God says, yes, the, Saul has, has done this thing. We... The, you, as the, the people of God, you have to rectify the situation. And so David, he goes to the Gibeonites. He goes, okay, Saul did this horrible stuff to you guys. How can I, how can I rectify this situation? How can we deal with this situation and, and bring justice to this situation? So the Gibeonites, they say, hey, here's what we want. And this is the part I'm summarizing. This, they go, we want all of Saul's lineage. We want to kill a bunch of them. We want to kill his lineage. And so David goes, okay. And he decides to kill, I think, something like seven of Saul's lineage. He keeps Mephibosheth uh, safe from the demanded execution. There's another Mephibosheth in Saul's lineage that does get killed. And so they, they get killed. And it's just this, this, a this brutal, sad scene where more of Saul's lineage gets killed because the Gibniat side say that's what will make us feel better. Now, there's a couple of problems, I think, with this story that we might not see uh, in how David lives through this story. And this isn't the main point, but this kind of helps us with the wrestle of this story. Uh, one of the things is this. David had made a promise to Saul saying, hey, I'm not going to kill your lineage. Remember all those years ago with the cutting the corner of his robe? He said, okay, I won't kill your lineage. And here we have Dave, the Gibeonites demanding to David, hey, let us kill your lineage. And David's like, oh, okay, all right. And so... And then, here's the second problem. If you go to Deuteronomy 24:16, you're going to find a specific law about this exact kind of a situation. And the law says this. Fathers cannot be killed for the sins of their children, and children cannot be killed for the sins of their father. It says that flat out. And so David right here, in, in doing his best to try to kind of seek justice, I think he, dropped, he fumbles the ball, right? He says, give me a nice, what, what do you want? They go, this is what we want. David probably said, should have said, hey... That's a little, that's too much, right? Like, let's figure something else out here because we want to be faithful to the Lord as we do this. But as we've seen with David, at times he lacks the resolve and boldness that he needs to have in some, some of these kingly situations. And so, so David gives them what they want. And, and the, the weird parts of that story can kind of spend, like, cause us for days to just kind of go, what is the, the mystery of God between like what he allows, where he interjects, where he does things? Like We could spend days just talking about that. But I think if we spend days talking about that, we're going to miss what I think is the main point of this story. And I think the main point of this story is that God really cares when powerful leaders abuse their power in a way that oppresses others. I even like how scholar Mary J. Evans and theologian Mary J. Evans, how she puts it. She says this, God takes seriously the rights of all members of society, even those who are normally counted as insignificant. And so when Saul was trying to take out the Gibeonites, God saw that as a major problem. Saul's gone now, though. And God still sees it as a major problem that Israel as a whole society, or at the very least, David as king and representative of Israel, had to correct, had to rectify. And again, I don't think David went about rectifying it the right way. But, again, I think the message of this passage is that God takes seriously the rights of all members of society. And he felt it was important to draw to Israel's attention the oppression that had been done on Saul's behalf, on Israel's behalf, towards Gibeon. And God wanted Israel to rectify that in some way. And and so what we see in the Old Testament a lot is that in ancient Israel, when God saw an abuse of power, he often held all of God's people accountable to rectify it. Which That's hard for us. That's hard for us to hear. That's that's very challenging uh, to our individualistic thinking around such issues. But that's how God deals with the the people of God very often in the Old Testament. And so the second lesson we learn about God dealing with this abuse of power is that God cares even about the margins of society. And he even wanted real-time justice for the margins of society even though David had nothing to do with what Saul did. It's just interesting. All right, let's look at this last story. It's found in 2 Samuel 24. I'm going to read uh, the first four verses of this story that will maybe even seem more strange to us as well. I'm going to take another quick drink. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Okay, we're gonna pause there and I'll, I'll try to explain a little bit what's going on and summarize the rest of the story. So again, we don't know quite when this happened in David's life. I think it was probably later in David's life personally. And, and, and David, it, we, we, we encounter this kind of first theological problem for us. Well, the first part of the story is God's angered anger is kindled against Israel. So part of me thinks there was kind of this spirit going about in Israel. And I don't mean like an evil spirit. I just mean their hearts were kind of turning this way that we're going to see that David's heart was, David's heart was being turned itself. And so basically, uh, then it says that the Lord incited David to do this thing that we're going to see in the story. This thing that he does ends up being a sin that God judges. And so you you read the story, you go, okay, God, you incited him though. Like that, that seems like on you, God, right? And then that creates a theological problem for us because uh, we read in James that God doesn't tempt us. Like he doesn't tempt his people. So we go, what's going on there? And so I think it's helpful to to realize that in Chronicles, this story is recounted again, and it kind of gives another detail in there that's helpful. And it doesn't say that God incited David. It actually Says the Satan or the adversary. So in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, Satan's kind of like a name of Satan, who we all, you know, you know who he is. And so Uh, But in the Old Testament, the Satan was like this adversary, the spiritual being. It might have been the same exact guy or it might have been like his team. I don't know how it worked in those times. And so Chronicles says it was actually the Satan or the adversary that went and incited David. This is the same person that like tests Job or being, I should say, that tests Job, if you're familiar with that story. And so, so I think what the author of Samuel is trying to say is God allowed David... To be incited because of the anger that God was having towards Israel. And, again, I wish there was more details in the story because we're kind of like, why was your anger being kindled, Lord? Why did you allow this? We don't know. The the author doesn't give us enough of those details. And so whatever happens, David is tempted into sinning. And this is the sin. He counts everybody. It's like, what? I don't understand. I've done that before. I'm in trouble. Like, I don't know, like, what's going to happen. And so what David does, he says, we got to count everybody. You see David's general go like, hey, we, this is not how Israel does things. David, we can't do this. And David says, I don't care. They count everybody. And then the Lord judges David and says, this was wrong, what you did, trying to count everybody. So I'm going to send a punishment. God gives them pick your own adventure punishment of three different things. And David picks the one that's a famine to everybody. And so he picks a famine to everybody. God sends this famine. It kills 70,000 people in Israel. The famine, or not the famine, a plague, I'm sorry, a plague. The plague kills 70,000 people. The plague starts to reach out like towards Jerusalem where David lives. And David says, Lord, please just let the plague hit me and nobody else here. And simultaneously, the Lord relents, and we see God's merciful, and, he's, and the, the angel of death that was, like, bringing this plague, he's like, stop, don't do it anymore. And that's kind of how this story ends. Super easy Bible story, you know? And so... Um, so a few things. I think to understand what's going on in this story, we have to try to understand what's with the counting. Like, why is this counting uh, seen as, as so, so bad? Why is God so angered uh, towards this, this counting thing? Now, I'll say this before I kind of say what I think it is. There are a lot of theologians out there that give all kinds of ideas about what they think this counting is, what the sin around it is, because the story itself doesn't have all these details like we're used to in the West, in modern day, uh, I think it confuses us and we go and we kind of just make up a bunch of different things. But I'm inclined to kind of think how Tim Keller and a lot of scholars think about this is that the counting itself is definitely proof of a pretty serious sinful heart Uh, that David was developing. And I think the people of Israel were developing together personally. And so this is what what was wrong with the counting. Counting your fighting men was something the nations around Israel did. All sorts of kings around Israel did. They would count up how many of their fighting men they had. And they would go, look, we've got 500,000. They've got 200,000. Let's go plunder that country next to us with less fighting men. And this was just a common practice of kings in that day. And as you've seen throughout the message of Samuel is that Israel was not to have a king like the nations, but they wanted a king like the nations. And so David, when he's gearing up to count everybody, and Joab, who we've seen is a tool and a half, he even is like, David, I don't know, man, like this might be too much. Like we might not be, I don't know if we should do this. David's like, no, we're doing it. We're counting everybody. Because David in his heart was gearing up for oppression. David was counting how many people he had in Israel to fight so he could look at the weaker nations around him and go and plunder those nations. This is not how God would have his people do war. They would not plunder. They would not oppress. If you go back to the story, I believe it's in 1 Samuel 15 with Saul, where God tells Saul to destroy all of the plunder. And we go, what what is about? What's going on there? Why Why did God get so mad at Saul? It's because God was essentially trying to communicate with the people of God that when they go to war, it will be because of justice, not oppression. That if they had to go to war, it had to involve God's justice, not oppression. And so when Saul kept some of the plunder and loot for himself, he was essentially communicating to the nations around Israel, we're just like you. We're plundering just like you. We're going to war to plunder just like you guys do. And God did not want that for Israel. And so when David is counting up the people of Israel to do the same thing, God Says no. That's not what my people do. We don't gear up for oppression. We don't exploit. We don't plunder. We are a people rooted in justice and mercy. That's what you can read all throughout the Old Testament. God wants a people that are rooted in mercy, rooted in actual justice. And so this sin that David commits, it's serious enough to God because Israel together were gearing up to oppress the peoples, and that's not what God would have for his people. And so the third lesson we learn about God who is a rock, who is bothered by abuses of power, is he is bothered by leaders who use their power to exploit, to give themselves more, to gain more power, to gain more things that they want. God does not want that for his people. God does not want his people, or really any people, to operate out of exploitation and power. He wants his people to operate out of justice and mercy and many more good characteristics of God. And so that's that's how 2 Samuel ends. Some, Some random stories from the end of David's life that are kind of hard stories to wrestle with. A psalm of David's and and some of David's last words. And so this is the last week we're going to be spent a significant amount of time looking at the life of David. We might mention him throughout the third king, who's Solomon, in the series. But this is essentially how the author wants us to see the end of David's life. And so what we see about David, what we've seen in this series is David was a king after God's own heart who made a lot of grievous, horrible, sinful mistakes. But in the midst of that, he was quick to repent and confess his sin and not excuse his sin. And he was often quick to seek God in everything that he did. And he showed us all kinds of ways that we can relate to God personally. And so David was a complicated king who was very sinful and yet still somehow a man after God's own heart. And and we can kind of see it in some of those ways I just listed. And because David was a man after God's own heart, what God did with David is he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We saw this a few weeks ago in the series. God makes this covenant. And to elaborate on that more, a covenant in that day was often made between a king and his vassals or the, the people of the land. And the, and the covenants would be like, the king would be like, I'll hold up this side of, my, of the deal. You hold up your side. If either of us break it, we will be torn apart. And God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, David. But God's covenant, we know from earlier covenants in the Bible, like with Abraham, God says, I will actually hold both sides of the covenant up. And the specific promise that he makes to David is a promise where he says, David, David, I'm going to bring an everlasting king through your lineage. I'm going to bring a king far better than you, far better than anyone who will live forever, who will sit on the throne forever. There will be a son of David one day who will be an everlasting king. And we know that that king was Jesus. And Jesus set up a covenant, another covenant, a new covenant, a better covenant. That anyone and everyone can bond themselves to. A covenant that's based on Jesus as the rock of our salvation. Meaning only Jesus can save us from sin. And our sin. Only Jesus can forgive us of our sin. Only Jesus can save us from the world's sin. A, a covenant that, he, that was founded by allowing himself to be torn apart by people with power who are abusing their power by killing the king who held all power in his hands. That's how Jesus founded this new covenant. And so David is a king that that showed us a lot of stuff. But the best things that David has shown us in this series is who God is, what our God is like, and what God was up to. And, And God, in David's life, was in these beginning stages of bringing about a king that would never fail us. May we give our allegiance to that king, church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for that son of David. Thank you that he has an everlasting kingship. Thank you that he will never fail us. God, thank you for the book of Samuel. Thank you for for what you've shown us through David's life. God, help us to not just see David as like some kind of role model, but help us to realize that if he's a role model, it's only in how we can relate to you or how we need to see the mirror of our own sin. And help us to see how so much of David's life actually shows us your character, God. I've loved being in this book with, with this people, God, to see a much fuller picture of who you are than sometimes I even give you credit for. You are a mysterious God. You are a complicated God. You are an infinite God. You are a powerful God. You are a merciful God. You are a just God. You are a loving God. You are a God that wants to restore everything. And you are a God that wants to give us the king our hearts cry out for. And so God, may we... See that Jesus is that king. God, for those of us, maybe we've got doubts going on in here, wrestles, whatever it is, God, would you just shine the glory of King Jesus into our minds and hearts somehow? Would you do a supernatural work in that way? So God, we love you and we need you. Amen.